Amen. Let's uh, look in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 35, verse 16. Genesis 35, verse 16. If you've got a handout, you can follow along with us. Uh, we are going to wrap up the last tribe uh, of Israel. We're going to talk about the tribe of Benjamin tonight uh, in our 12 tribes series. Genesis chapter 35, verse 16. Here's what it says. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was, a, was still some distance to go to Epaphrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on that way to Epaphrath, that is, Bethlehem. So she names him this name, and actually that name means son of sorrow. Wouldn't that be a depressing name to have? <laughs> You're the son of your mother's sorrows. And she was dying in childbirth. But Jacob, he renames him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And we say somebody's on the right hand, or as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, we mean it's the favored side. Not literally the right, but it's the favored, right, the favored side. The right hand's the strong hand, the favored hand. So he says... He's not going to be a son of my sorrow. He's the second son of Rachel. Uh, he, that's his favorite wife. She only gave him two sons. And so he's son of my right hand. He's a favored son. In fact, it was her death that brought him life. And so she, he names Benjamin son of my right hand. And a little, we, you know, let's go talk a little bit about the, the history of Benjamin. We don't know a whole lot about Benjamin. He doesn't speak in Scripture uh, at all, we don't hear any words that he says or speeches. But we know that um, he was the full-blooded son of Joseph, or full-blooded son of uh, Rachel and Jacob, the brother, full brother of Joseph. And when Joseph is sold off into slavery, and Jacob thinks that he's dead, Benjamin becomes that. Oh man, you know, like he's the little boy. He's the favorite daddy's boy. You know, I mean, he's the only one left. He's Joseph's gone. It's him, and so he's very protective of Benjamin. He's the youngest. Uh, Joseph, the favorite, is gone now. There's just Benjamin left. And so when, they, uh, when the brothers go down to Egypt, and Joseph, who they don't know is Joseph, is scheming, and he says, send, my brother, send your youngest brother, uh, which is Benjamin. They go back to his dad and say, Dad, they won't let Simeon out of jail unless we bring all of our brothers and Benjamin. They, they want Benjamin. And he's like, I'm not giving you Benjamin. He's, he's my favorite. You, I've already lost Joseph. You're not going to take Benjamin from him. So there's that. And then the moment that Benjamin finally does come and Joseph, his brother, sees him, what does he do? Joseph weeps when he sees his baby brother. And so you see this connect. This family has this deep connection with Benjamin, uh, this favored son. Uh, so his name means son of the right hand. Uh, the symbol is a wolf, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And the stone on the priestly breastplate, for his tribe would be purple, and his family, as I said, he's the twelfth son of Jacob. Now look with me in Genesis 49, verse 27. So as always, we're going to look at the prophecies of Jacob and Moses, and then we're going to look at the history of the tribe and see how they fulfilled those two prophecies and what their name means. It's, it's just interesting to me that uh, these young men... Something about their name speaks about their life. What their daddy speaks over them speaks about their life. And what Moses speaks over them speaks about either their life or the tribe. And so God is just working through uh, these people their entire life. All right, Genesis 49, 
verse 27, it says this. So remember, Jacob's on his deathbed. He brings all of his boys in, and he begins to prophesy over them one at a time. And it's the Holy Spirit speaking over him about what this generation through them is going to happen. Some of them are great, like Judah, and then some of them are like Dan. You know, you're just going to be a horrible person, like a serpent that bites the horse and makes the rider fall off. I mean, some are bad. Then he gets to Benjamin, and this is his favorite son after Joseph. And here's what he says. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. I can imagine that I think they would have been like, what? Dad's done lost it. He's, he's at the end of his life. He's senile. Benjamin's the favorite, loving baby boy. And Dad prophesies of the Holy Spirit, and that's the only way this is going to happen because you're about to see how this is about to come to pass because no, no father who had that relationship with Benjamin and Joseph is going to prophesy, Son, I know you're the baby boy and we all love you, but you are a ravenous wolf. Right? It wouldn't follow the character. And so what he's saying, and you're going to see in a minute, Benjamin's descendants are going to be raised up as mighty men of war. Uh, even though he's a tender, he, this word literally, it says a ravenous wolf, it means a wolf that tears. That his people are going to be people of a vicious and warlike attitude. And we are not going to see this until later on. But look in then, flip over to Deuteronomy 33. Let's look at Moses. We're just going to jump into Moses. Moses' prophecy, Deuteronomy 33, verse 12. Deuteronomy 33, verse 12. Okay, so he's born... He was supposed to be son of my sorrows, but now he's son of my right hand. And his dad says, you're going to be like a wolf that tears people apart, man. You're, you're, that's who you are. And that doesn't make any sense. But okay, dad, thanks. Dad dies. Benjamin dies. They become a tribe. They live through Egypt. They, they go through Moses and let my people go. And they get into the wilderness. And, and they go through the 40 years of, of wilderness journey. And then now they're at the end of the rope with Moses. Moses is about to die. Then Moses now prophesies over this tribe uh, 30, 40,000 people. In Deuteronomy 33, 12, he says, Of Benjamin, he said, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him, who shields him all the day. And he dwells, and he dwells between his shoulders. Okay, so actually, I was looking through this, and I was like, what in the world, God? What it, this doesn't make any sense. On one hand, you say, this tribe is going to be like a ravenous wolf. And on the other hand, now you prophesy this tribe is going to be a tribe that you care for, that's dwelling between your shoulders, that uh, you're going to put security and shield over him. And so you have this duality. And that's really what tonight is all about, a duality uh, of natures, okay? So, for instance, I'm going to to give you some, there's some verses on your handout, I'll say it here, but I'm not going to read them. But this, in one sense, Moses is saying this. He's, this prophecy is saying it's about a God who carries him and favors him, which God talks about in Deuteronomy 12, that that's what he wants to do with Israel. And then in, he says, it's a, he, God says, I desire that Israel would rest securely in the promised land, which is what he's saying over Benjamin. And he says, as a God in Deuteronomy 32 says, man, I'm a God who likes to wrap Israel in my arms like an eagle spreads his wings and hovers over its chicks and wraps them and secures them and shelters them. That's what I want to do to Israel. And that's kind of what you see here. I'm going to be a God for Benjamin that shields him all the day. That's what I want. And what you're seeing, it says, the last part says, and it's setting him between the shoulders, or he dwells between his shoulders. In Exodus 28, 
This gives you this illustration. Exodus 28, God tells Moses about the high priest. And he says, Moses, on the high priestly shoulders, I want you to put two stones. In each stone, I want you to write uh, six tribes on these stones, half on one side, half on the other. And I want you to put these stones on his shoulders. And he's going to bring the people of God, the high priest, before the presence of God. And then, then he goes on and says, Moses, I also want you to have the breastplate that, uh, that, that I'm going to have on him, laid in gold, and it's going to have stones and all the and multiple rows. There's going to be 12 stones, and on each one, it's going to be a color and a name of that tribe. It's going to represent bringing the tribes also, again, uh, before Israel. And some people think that in this verse right here, it says, and he dwells between the shoulders, a God who's going to be loved and security and shields him, is referencing to one thing. When God is about, when Moses dies and Joshua pulls the lots and the Holy Spirit says where Benjamin's going to go, one city that Benjamin is going to get is called Jerusalem. And how many people know that Jerusalem later becomes the capital, and that's where God is going to put his tabernacle and then his temple, and that's where the high priest is going to be. And so some people think that, man, Moses is prophesying that Benjamin is going to be the seat uh, of Jerusalem, the seat of the Ark of the Covenant, where the high priest is going to be. And so there's, there's that, and then there's this duality of, Benjamin, you're going to be a ravenous wolf, you're going to tear people apart. At the same time, Benjamin, I long to care for you. I long to shield you. I long to bring intercession for you. I long to be a God who are be a Christ Messiah who's going to bring you into the presence. And so you're going to find out that in this moment, uh, God is setting up two possibilities, two natures, two prophecies. In a sense, uh, you have two choices in life. We have two choices to follow one nature of our natural nature, and you have a choice to follow the will of God. You've got the uh, permissible will of God and the sovereign will. You know, you've got the one that, okay, God's going to let you do whatever you want, uh, and this is what's going to happen. And then there's the one, the perfect will, that if you follow this, man, God is going to take care of you. And here's what God's laying out. So uh, let's talk about the territory of Benjamin just for a second. So I just told you that as Joshua sets out and says, hey, Benjamin, here's what you're going to get. Benjamin, even the location, speaks of this duality. So just follow with me just for a second. So most people think Jerusalem is in Judah, which is true. When the kingdom split in half, and you've got ten tribes to the north and two to the south, Judah will have Jerusalem. And uh, Benjamin, though, originally, Jerusalem, and Joshua 18, Jerusalem is in the territory of Benjamin. Even though we think about Judah and Jerusalem and the priests, that's all true. But Benjamin is going to get Jerusalem later. But Benjamin is also at the border of what will become a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. He is on the border between Ephraim, which will be the most powerful tribe, actually at that time of all of Israel, even more than Judah. It will become the leader of the northern kingdom of where we'll find Jeroboam and all these bad guys. And Ephraim will be another synonym for the northern kingdom. And then on the south of Benjamin, right there at the line, he'll have Judah, the nature, the tribe of David, the kingdom of David, and, and the reign and, uh, of the Messiah. And so Benjamin finds himself as a border state. In a sense, he's on the fence. He's, he's between two natures, all right? Uh, I'm from Missouri, 
uh, and in Missouri we have this thing called the Mason-Dixon line. So where half of Missouri was for slavery and half of... We didn't know what we were, right? You couldn't make up your mind. Half the state wanted to go one way, half the state go the other, and most of the time they were neutral. Uh, it, that's Benjamin. It, there's a duality there. Even in the land God gives, in the two prophecies God gives, and we're going to talk about the people, uh, because the people of Benjamin will find are going to be really awesome for God or really awesome for wickedness, Okay. So they had Jericho, they had Bethel, they had Gibeon, they had Ramah, they had Mitzvah, and they had Jerusalem. Okay, so let's talk about the legacy. Look with me in your Bible to the book of Judges. Flip over to Judges, Judges chapter 3. Okay, so here's the legacy of Benjamin. All right, number one, they became, like Jacob said, they became fierce warriors, mighty men of valor. There is a group of people in Benjamin who are the elite, uh, we would call them marksmen today. They could take, I think it was 700 guys, they could take a slingshot and they could hold out a piece of hair, horse's hair, whatever, and with a slingshot, all 700 guys could hit that piece of hair first time and not miss. How many people can do that with a slingshot? All right? These guys were expert marksmen. The other thing that uh, they were, I mean, you go through the, the history of the judges and different things through Benjamin, these guys, they don't lose they're fierce, they're ferocious. What did Jacob say? You're going to be like a ravaging, ferocious wolf. That's what becomes of this tribe. Man, they are fighters. The other side, another interesting note about Benjamin is most men in Benjamin were left-handed. Now, what is Benjamin? <laughs> Some of the left-handed people. What, what does Benjamin mean? Son of my right hand. Isn't that ironic? I don't know why, but that's just something to note. Benjamin, his name means son of my right hand, but Benjamites, they happened to be left-handed, which was notable back then because apparently that many people were left-handed. I don't, how many people were left-handed here? One, two, okay, not very many. Most people are right-handed, okay? So you guys will be in the tribe of Benjamin, apparently. Okay, so we're going to watch out for you two through this lesson. Find out which nature you are. Okay, so... Um, Son of my right hand, but ironically, they were left-handed, so that's unique. Now, let me tell you about this guy named Ehud. Actually, this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture, I think because it's gross. I don't know. Uh, so, you ready? Now, the book of Judges is rated R, by the way. We don't have kids here tonight, but I'm not going to go into that crazy of details. But let me tell you this story about Ehud. Ehud shows out to be one of the men who was mighty in Benjamin and who was kind of awesome for God. So, remember I said they got two natures. One nature is you can be ferocious and ravaging, which is good. Sometimes, but it can be bad too. But then on the other side, you say, God says, I'm going to make a holy place with you. I want to care for you and shield you and bring you into my presence. That's what I want to do for you. But you're a ravaging wolf. All right? So Ehud, man, uh, there was a, a Moabite king. Uh, make sure. Yeah, the Moabite king, King Eglog. Not Eggnog, Eglog, Eglog, whatever his name is. 18 years he oppresses uh, Israel, because they had fallen away from God. So 18 years they oppress him. He had the Moabites come in and they oppress Israel. Ehud, out of Benjamin, steps up to the challenge. And so as they were having to pay tribute every year, so uh, Ehud, because he's left-handed, he takes his sword. Now he carves for himself a two-edged sword. Remember that? Anybody ever heard a verse about a two-edged, double-edged sword? Okay, we'll come back in a second. That's important to note. He would normally, you would normally fight with your right hand, so you normally your sheath would be on your left, and that's where people would look for it. But instead, he's left-handed. He puts his sheath on his right thigh, 
where no one's going to really suspect it. And he goes into the king. They come and bring the fanfare in. Here's our tribute, O king. I have a special word from God for you. And so he says, okay, well, get everybody out. I want to hear this private secret word from the Lord. And this king is enormously large. I mean, large, large, okay? And so he sits on his throne, and he stands up, and Ehud says, hey, I have a secret word from the Lord. No one has checked his, left, uh, his, his right thigh, so he pulls out that double-edged sword. He stabs the king in the gut, and the sword disappears in his fat rolls. Comes out the other side, and he lets it go. And then it's stuck in him. And he falls back and he dies and his bowels come out and all this kind of stuff. And then Ehud just quietly goes out, goes out the upper chamber room, locks the door behind him, he goes on. His servants come back and they say, well, the door's locked. He must be relieving himself on the bathroom. He's a large guy. Apparently he was on the toilet a lot. But he, he's relieving himself and they wait and wait and wait. They think he can't be on the toilet that long. This is in the Bible, y'all. Okay, you read the Bible, it's funny. Uh, so finally they get a key, unlock the door. They find out he's dead. By that time... Ehud has already escaped, gotten the troops, come back, and then he takes out Moab, pushes him back, and for 80 years has peace. You see how God can use a ferocious man, a, 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 the veracity, the zealousness, uh, when it's wielded properly. So that's a Benjamite. Left-handed, double-edged sword, fighting for God. Let me tell you about a bad story. Look in Judges 19. There's also a bad story about Benjamin. Because just like you can be ferociously good, you can be ferociously bad. This is a simple, uh, it's, not a, it's a kind of a long story, but I'm going to sum it up as quick as I can. In the days of the judges, the Bible says repeatedly it was a day when everybody did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. Not much different than today. Well, there was a Levite. He wasn't much of a Levite at all, and he went and got him a concubine from Judah. And he goes back, and he, he lives, uh, uh, in, he's passing through. He, he gets the concubine. She plays the harlot that she likes to play, and she goes back to her daddy's house. So he waits some time, and he finally goes, and he goes back to get her, and, man, he's there for a few days, and the father-in-law just wouldn't let him leave, and finally said, no, no, we got to get out of here. We're going back home. Uh, you've been nice and all, but I'm going to take my wife. We're going to go back, and I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to take her back. Well, they pass through, and he's got a servant, and he says, hey, let's go stay in this town. He said, no, no, we can't stay in a foreign place. We don't want to stay in a foreign city uh, because bad things can happen there. So he goes, and he stays uh, in Gibeah, let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, in Gibeah, in Benjamin. So they go to the town square in Gibeah, in the land of Benjamin, one of the main cities. Stay in the town square, waiting because it was getting dark and they didn't want to be on the road at nighttime because it was dangerous. Stay in the town square. And them, my man, his servant, his concubine, and their donkey. And uh, an old man comes in from Ephraim, not from an old man who lived there from out of town, comes in and says, Hey, what are you doing? Where are you from? Hey, let, I'll let you be my guest. But whatever you do, don't stay in the town square. So they go into their house. This story sounds familiar for anybody who's heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They go into the house, uh, and finally some wicked men of Benjamin from that town bang on the door and say, give us that Levite man so we can have relations with him. And so we see this militant homosexuality, this just debauchery is in this town. And they, the old man says, no, 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 don't do that. Take my daughter, take his, his wife, whatever. And so the Levite, they wouldn't say no, throws his concubine out there. They rape and beat her all night long. And finally in the morning, she has died on the doorstep, touching the door. 
And he, ha- for whatever reason, he, again, he's not a great man either. He doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy for her. It's her fault that we were in this mess in the first place. I guess he thinks he throws her on the donkey. They go home. She's dead. He cuts her up in 12 pieces because of he's so angry of what had happened. Cuts her up in 12 pieces, sends her FedEx across the entire country. And because it was so horrendous and what happened, they call us council. Unite all the tribes together, and they march on Benjamin to rid the land of this wickedness. Uh, because remember, this is a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of stuff. This is Abraham did through this. That God rained fire on this. What in the world is this doing in our country? And so they march on it. Well, Benjamin wouldn't give up these wicked men because it's kind of I got a deportation rights. I don't know. They wouldn't give up these men who were of them to be pers- uh, uh, killed by an outsider's. So they have 4,000 troops march on Benjamin. And Benjamin has just a little over 26,000 soldiers. So 400,000 soldiers come down on 26,000 Benjamites. That doesn't look like it's going to be a good win. But remember who Benjamin is. These dudes are bad. And day one, Judah comes down. And thousands and thousands die. Day two, Israel goes up again to fight Benjamin. Thousands and thousands more die. At the end of two days, 40,000 people are killed from Israel's side. Benjamin is still standing with his 26,000. Think about it. Those guys are tough. They were wrong, but they're tough. 40,000 guys are killed by that 26,000 men of Benjamin. And finally, Israel is so tired, they're praying, they're praying, God, help us, help us, help us. And finally, God gives them a plan to to trick them, and they rout them out. And finally, uh, Israel conquers them, wipes out almost every single man of Benjamin. Only 6,000 people, 6,000 men survive. And they end up having to have this agreement to where they're going to give Benjamin women just to repopulate the tribe because they're so devastated. So there's this, again wolf-like ferocity in a day of wickedness, right? Another man you can think about was King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Think about King Saul. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul is the same way. I mean, think, if you know anything about King Saul's life, the dude was a warrior. He was known for being a warrior. He had a great victory. He united the kingdom. Man, everywhere he went, he was victorious. Everywhere he turned, he was victorious. But at the same time, what do we know about him? Dude was prideful. He didn't always listen to God, didn't listen to Samuel. And the same reason he fell. That's the same reason he fell. God turns his back from Saul. Saul gets possessed by a demon. He's ferocious against David. You see this nature. Look at these natures. This same man, on one side, he has the propensity to be a mighty king and do great things. And at the same time, God's saying, I'm sorry I ever let Saul be king. Right? ferocious in both ways. You can be zealous for God and good things, and you can be zealous for the world. There's two, two ways of being zealous and this wolf-like nature. And here's God saying, man, I, I need a man after my own heart. So Saul in his dual nature, he falls. He falls on his own short. He dies basically because of his pride. Think about another one is Esther and Mordecai. And Esther 7 through 9, Esther and Mordecai, man, in a sense, they're ferocious for the things of God. They stand up for righteousness in a day of, of exile when uh, Esther had to 
really go to the king and risk her life, and then they had to get out of a trick by Haman. And in fact, if you read the end of Esther, man, they, they kill a bunch of people at the end of Esther. We, uh, you know, with the little, my, my daughter's favorite story in the Bible is Esther. She loves that there's a princess, you know, in the Bible, and she can pretend she's a princess. And, but at the end of that, we don't really read the end of Esther in my Bible stories at my house, but at the end of Esther, man, they, the Jews just kill all of the people who were against them. And God gives them great victory. They were ferocious. So Benjamin is full of rebels who fought against God's plan, but also some great men and women who fought for God uh, are in this tribe. And there are some even more that at the same life did both. And one season of their life, they're ferocious for God. And in one season of their life, they're ferocious uh, for their self. And uh, let me give you the probably the most notable person, and that is a man named Paul. Did you know Paul was from Benjamin? Let's talk about Paul and kind of look at his life just recently. Look at me in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, and then Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Most notable in the tribe of Benjamin, outside of King Saul, is another Saul who God, in his dual nature of this man, actually renames him Paul. He is so, uh, he epitomizes what a Benjamite is, is Paul. So Paul is, Saul as Saul, he's ferocious for God, but he's really ferocious for this Jewish faith. Look in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Saul began ravaging, look at that word, ravaging. You notice a prophecy of Jacob in there? What did he say his son would be? He said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. It says, Saul began ravaging the church. Saul and his DNA as a Benjamite was ravenous. He was zealous. He was passionate. Just as a person, it was in their family DNA. I know some of you guys grew up uh, maybe with uh, uh, anger may have been an issue in your family. I know uh, some people are more hot-blooded than others, just how we are. Uh, it's a, I mean, maybe it's a southern Cajun thing or something like that, you know, or uh, you can kind of see that. So Saul, it says, ravaging the church, entering from house to house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Look in Acts 9, verse 1, just the next chapter over. Now Saul, still breathing threats. I think about that wolf, you know, he's panting, he's breathing, his nose, his nostrils are, you know, uh, Steaming, He says, Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was hunting people. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's not cool, but, but think about that. The parallels of that. Benjamin will be a ravenous wolf. And here's this man in the New Testament. It says that he was ravaging the church and he was hunting them down. You know, you can't plan this stuff 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years later. Uh, it's ravaging the church. And, but here's what happens. You know the story. Man, through a powerful intervention, God brings Saul to his knees. Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, he breaks down. He repents. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens when you get filled with the Holy Spirit? You get a new nature. You get a new mind. You get a new calling. That, and what God began to do then is He didn't just... You're new, but you're still yourself. Uh, it's kind of like in a, in a marriage 
when you get married, you, are, you were two different people, but the Bible says the two shall become one. You're still yourself, but you're also something new. When I got married, I didn't lose my hobbies and my interests and my likes and what I like to eat. I still am me, but I'm also something new. I'm one with my wife, and my, my wants change, and I sacrifice for her wants, and we do things differently now, and our schedules are related to one another. We're interlocked. Our, sometimes we finish those sentences. We're new. There is a new part of me, but there's also the old me. Uh, in a good way, in a bad way. And Paul, who, uh, or Saul, now called Paul, is the same way. God takes this ravenous, hunting wolf of a man from the Jacob prophecy, and then we talk about the Moses prophecy, which is that there is a high priest who wants to bear you on his shoulders and take you into the holy place and hover over you, and shield you, and make intercession for you, and have intimacy with you, and carry you on His wings. And Paul, the ravenous wolf, meets this Jesus Christ from Moses' prophecy, and gets identified with Him. And Paul finds out that that Christ, who's taking you to the holy place, now wants to come inside of you, and now that holy place is not something this ravenous wolf would just go to, but it's something that he became inside of him. And he became something completely different. Look in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. This is the powerful transformation. I mean, powerful transformation. But in the same time, God's going to use that wolf-like nature of Paul to do great things. Look in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He says this, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's a Benjamin. That's a Benjamite. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, had called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. This is what Matthew Henry says. I think this is in your notes. It says, Blessed Paul was of this tribe, and he did, in the morning of his day, devour the prey as a persecutor. But in the evening, he divided the spoil as a preacher. Remember, that's what his dad said about uh, Benjamin. Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he'll devour the prey. And in the evening... He divides the spoil. And Matthew Henry says, at the beginning of Paul's life, he would devour the church. But at the end of his life, he would reap the rewards. He would divide the spoil of, having to, of the church itself. And so, uh, I think that's cool for, for Paul. Let me give you these little application points, and we can go into discussion. But ap- here's what I want you to get out of the lesson of Benjamin is this. Everybody has two natures. James says, guys, there shouldn't be in your life both blessing and cursing. It shouldn't have fresh water and clean water, I mean, fresh water and salt water coming out of the same fountain. It should be, we should have a nature that we've given over to God. And um, everyone has a choice. Just like Benjamin was on the fence. He's between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. He's between his father's prophecy and Moses' prophecy. He's got a zealous nature about him. He's hot-headed. He's fierce. He can fight. 
But what God is trying to get people to do, I think we all can relate to Benjamin. He's saying, you've got to give me your nature. You've got to give me your good points and your bad points. You've got to give me all of you, even the things that, because you have a propensity for good and you have a propensity for evil. But man, when you are all in with Christ and, and it says that Christ, like that high priest Moses prophesied, he's wanting to have intimate communion with you. Uh, Benjamin means right hand, but now we know the true person at the right hand of the Father is Jesus Christ. He's that high priest carrying us on his shoulder, making intercession, shielding us with his wings, carrying us, covering over us. And he's saying, Benjamin, you're a ravenous wolf, but give me your nature. Let me bring you into a holy place where I can transform you. And you've got to stop sitting on the fence Like Saul, one point of your life you're doing good. Another point of your life you're doing bad. Like Paul, you were zealous for something, but man, you got to let me transform you and make you zealous for the right things. And like Ehud, another one, you've got to start wielding the sword for yourself and take that double-edged sword, which the Bible, Hebrew says, is a a double-edged sword is the Word of God. And what does it say? It says that it is active and sharper than any two-edged sword you could pick up as that ravenous person. It's piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's a lot in there that you can really say is, man, what am I passionate about? And how can I give that passion to the Lord? Uh, a lot of things that, you know, when I, as a, as a young person, I always was kind of the, the nerd head. You know, I was the egghead. I was analytical and driven and organized. And I know that as a, as a person that said, never gone into ministry, as a secular person, I would have been a good administrator or manager or, or something like that in that sense. And God takes that gift and uses it in my career now as a pastor. There's things that you have in your life that some people are, man, you're a coach or a leader by nature. Man, God can use that in the church. If you, you've got art ability or vocal ability in the world, man, let God take that and use that in the church. It's whatever you're passionate about. Some people are passionate about knitting and sewing, and some people are passionate about talking on the telephone. Be a door greeter. You know what I mean? Take that passion, whatever you're zealous for, Give your nature to God and let Him make that into a calling. Because I think there are so many ways people are missing out in the church today thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know what I do or who I am. But like Paul and Benjamin, stop, stop sitting on the fence just in between. Just, man, go all in with God and let, let Him conform you to His image. But uh, be zealous. Paul says in Titus, before he dies, he says, Titus, God's called you. He, he's going to do things in His church. And what He wants to do is create a church that is zealous for good deeds. Don't you think it's interesting? That's Paul a Benjamite saying that, right? It's, it's not just some guy saying, be zealous. No, 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 it's Paul who by nature gave his zealousness to God. And he's saying, God wants to make a church who's zealous, ferocious, that's a better word even, ferocious to do God's work. And uh, man, that that's means so much more. He even said in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, be zealous, be ferocious to have the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit and build up God's church. And uh, if you want to think about being ferocious, if, if Paul was ferocious to hunt down and persecute the Christians and go from town to town to find them, look how he went now. He's going from town to town to find the lost. 
Isn't that awesome? God, how God can take a ravenous wolf and make him into a mighty man of God uh, who's zealous for the kingdom. And so whatever you're passionate about, I just want to challenge you tonight. Um, go all in. Ask God, man, how, how, how can you use my talents and abilities? What is it in my life that I'm passionate about? And how can I use that passion uh, for the things of God? Amen? Amen. Any questions?